I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. Well, what a treat. My very, very great pleasure to welcome Dr. John Demartini once again into our studio. And this time it's the most fascinating topic because it actually transcends every area of our life. It's not really specific. It's about how we on the inside influence the results that we achieve in our life on the outside. So what we're talking about is how our thoughts determine our destiny, how our beliefs create our actions, our actions create our results, and then how our results, when stretched over a lifetime, may become your destiny. Well, first of (laughs) all, thank you for having me. And um, every individual, regardless of gender or age or culture, lives moment by moment by a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most to least important in their life. Whatever's highest on their list of values at any moment, whatever's really most important to them, whatever their most priority, they spontaneously are inspired to do that. And they spontaneously think about it. If you have a high, very high value on raising your beautiful children, then it's hard to get them out of your mind. If you have a very high value on running a business, that's what dominates your thinking. And your innermost dominant thought, which is an expression of this highest value, determines your destiny. Because it determines how you perceive what you decide and what you act upon. And your thoughts determine a lot about what your mind is focused on, your attention and your intentions. And those affect how you perceive and decide and act. How do you, I mean, from a day-to-day basis, indulge those kind of values when we all involved? I'm thinking of myself because you're talking about the value of raising children, which, of course, is a very important value to me, but I also have to work. I also have to run a home. I also have to do a lot of training and interview Dr. John Demartini all at the same time. So we have many tracks, even though we know that if we had to choose, we'd know what our priorities are. How do you keep it all in the air? Well, I must say, I, I make the statement that if we don't fill our day with the highest priority, most important, most inspiring, most fulfilling actions... Entropy takes over and our day fills up with low priority distractions that don't inspire us. And we have a choice. We have a choice to delegate those and allow other people to assist us and stick to the highest priority things. Or we have a choice of changing our perceptions about those actions that are maybe not initially are inspiring to us, but finding out how they are on the way, not in the way, and have meaning for us. And then, then we can be energized by things that we thought we had to do, but actually don't have to do. You we want to we do. can want to do it. Mm. Or we can delegate. I always say either go and do what you love through delegating or love what you do through linking. Mm. And linking is how specifically is this action temporarily, until I can delegate, helping me fulfill what is meaningful to me today. Mm. And many people who, I mean, I've had many thousands of people come to the Breakthrough Experience and other programs that I've done that are thinking they're trapped doing things. But once we structure their life and find a way where they can actually become funded doing something that they really love doing, because if you're not doing something you love to do and getting paid for it, you're vulnerable to have to go and do a job that's less fulfilling Mm -hmm. to pay for things. But I find that when people actually figure out a way of 
getting paid to do what they love to do and then making enough income to delegate the rest away. They liberate themselves from low priority things that devalue them and get on with the things that truly inspire them and liberate them to do mm. something and build so momentum. So part of it, because I think that initially when you're talking to people, they're not going to be that connected in understanding the value. It's going to be more I have to that work. That's why we have this thing, which I think is a bit arbitrary, called a work-life balance, as if life is one part and work is another. The work is the part you have to do. The life is the part that you want to do. And, you know, kind of never the two shall meet, which you saying is it's not only that they shall meet, it's that they shall be almost one and the same because you see the value out of the work part. Well, instead of having a schizophrenic life where you have a Monday morning blue, Wednesday hump day, thank God it's Friday and week friggin' end, and then you work very hard to make money, and then you go in the weekends and on holidays to go and blow the money so you can go back to have to work again. Mm-hmm. To me, that's that's sort of a schizophrenic life, and it basically undermines momentum building and what you do and economically. So I ask people, what is it you would absolutely love to do, and how do you get handsomely beautifully paid to do that? What are the highest priority actions to help you go and do that? What obstacles might you run into, and how do you solve them in advance? What worked and what didn't work today towards that objective? How can you do it more effectively tomorrow? And how did whatever ex- you experienced today, how did it help you get one step closer to that objective? Because mm-hmm. when you're doing something you really love to do, the people I've met that are really inspired by what they do and they're getting handsomely paid to do that, they have a completely different life than the average. Do you find that you always can get people to find that link and to begin to see the kind of joy and um, not productive result because that sounds like money again, which I guess it would be also, but more the kind of satisfaction that there's always a way because I think that that's got to be the first step. Yes. Can I share an outrageous story for you? Yes, please. <laughs> I was teaching the Breakthrough Experience in New York, and there's a lovely lady, late 20s, almost 30, uh, sitting in the class. And she's right up in the front end, so I put her on the spot, at, and I asked her a question, what is it you absolutely love doing? And she kind of was like, uh, I love spending time with my dog. I said, great, write that down. I said, how can you get handsomely and beautifully paid to do that? Or in her case, beautifully paid to do it. And she goes, I have no idea. I said, answer the question, be accountable. How could you get handsomely, beautifully paid to spend time with your dog? Mm. And she goes, I have no idea. I said, look, think again. Mm. How could you get paid to do that? Mm. And she goes, well, I have a cute little chihuahua and people love taking pictures of it. I guess I could charge for it. I said, fantastic. So she left the program and I had give her seven questions to ask herself every day. And she had to be accountable to answer these. And the next day she walked in the park down the Philosopher's Road where all the trees are in New York City down to where the fountain is by the boathouse. And this time, instead of just when people come up and take a picture, they just took a picture. She said, oh, well, sorry, but I'm his agent and it's $5. Mm-hmm. She never did that before. And she made $5 mm-hmm. and she walked home and she said, you paid for your food today. Mm-hmm. Talking to the dog and his name was Eli. That night, because she got rewarded by her creativity, she got this little red elastic fabric she found in the closet and she sewed this little tube thing and she stuck him in this tube thing, got his sunglasses and put a strap on it and taught him how to walk up on his hind legs. And so the following day she took him into the park. And when she did, when she got down to the boathouse area in the, in the fountain where all the people are, she pranced him up on his hind legs with that tube on where everybody wanted to take a picture of him with sunglasses. And so she made $15. She tripled her income. Mm. And then she went back and she started making outfits. And if you went online, her name is Karen Beal. If you went online, you can see all the outfits she developed. And she started making Cleopatra outfits and 
all these creative things and whatever the season festivals were, she would make an outfit for it. Mm. And she started making $125 a wow. day with her dog and taking pictures. Mm. She made cards that she was the agent of him. He's a model and she made some fun out of it. Mm. Well, one day she was sitting there making good money on this. And all of a sudden a guy was laughing, just laughing. He says, he walks up to her and he says, you know, I'm involved in, in marketing. I believe I could use your, your dog in a commercial. Mm. Can we talk? And he says, yeah, I'm his agent. Mm -hmm. They closed a deal for the milk bone dog biscuit commercial, a mascot, which made him two point, she made this lady $2.2 million. Unbelievable. Then she got two other commercials out of it. Then she got three television shows out of it. The dog became a famous and was comparative to the Gidget dog for the Taco Bell. And she went out and made money and she went to the Globe Awards, the Academy Awards. This became the most famous dog in Hollywood in New York. And it became an icon. Mm. What was amazing is that she just kept asking those seven questions again. What were the seven questions? What is it I would absolutely love to do in my life? Right. How do I get handsomely paid to do it? So my vocation and vacation are the same, so I don't have a schizophrenic right. life. What are the highest priority actions I can do today to make me move one step closer to that fulfillment? What obstacles might I run into and how do I solve them in advance? What worked and what didn't work today? How can I do it more effectively and efficiently tomorrow? And how did whatever happened today help it make me one step closer to the outcome? Hmm. Now, she went on to do that, and then what happened is the dog got up in age, and she didn't want to lose the game and momentum, so she got another baby dog, a little bit younger, and trained him, and he took it over, and she went through three dogs that looked identical. It was the same name, and for 20-something years, she kept this dog Amazing. going, and he didn't, he, of course, he, he didn't live that long, because that would be 140 years yeah. a dog. But she made a fortune, and she retired with $25 million of a penthouse with this dog. And Eli became one of the most famous dogs in New York. Oh, what a great story. So this is what, what happens when people get creative and ask the right so, questions. The quality of our lives based on the quality of the questions we ask. So and I'm, our thoughts determine them. If I want to, okay, so, so we need to go into that, how the thoughts. Because I think what happens is that your thoughts are sometimes based on assumption. They're not really, and those assumptions perhaps come from beliefs, beliefs or interjects that you have kind of internalized and become almost woven into the fabric of your being so that you don't question them. My mother said, I must. My father said, I have to. My religion said, I got to. Women are like this. Men are like that. The culture is this, and so on and so on. And then you act on those results, those beliefs, and then you create a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy all the time. You don't kind of, if actually I had something like that happen to me quite recently, it was both a friend and a colleague of mine who lives in London, and we'd had quite a difficult conversation just prior to this. And I came home and I was tired and I didn't want to pick up this conversation. There was a message from her and I thought to myself, it's definitely going to be that again. I can't handle it. It's going to, I'll, I'll call back tomorrow. And I didn't. The next day there was a message again and I had that kind of mm, feeling coming over me. But, you know, I knew that eventually I had to. And I was about to call her back on day number three when she called me. And actually it was not like that at all. It was easy. We resolved it. It was fine. But what I started thinking about is what would have happened if my belief had dictated that action on an ongoing basis. My not returning the call would have resulted in her really being upset, which might have had more to do with my action, actually, based on my own belief than anything that was in her mind or that was a previous reality. And I find that that kind of thing happens 
happens all the time. So we're talking about it now as a kind of a macro thing, but our little interactions are affected by our beliefs all the time and result in unfortunate and unnecessary self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, as I stated earlier, every individual has a set of priorities, a set of values that they live by. If they set a goal, an intention or attention to fulfill the highest value, they have the highest probability of achievement because they spontaneously are inspired to take actions in that direction. I love teaching. I don't let myself down in the teaching area or in the research area, but I have a low value on cooking and driving, and I definitely don't do that. Mm. I haven't driven in 30 years, and I haven't cooked since I was 24. So if you're not delegating low-priority things and sticking to high-priority things, you're going to devalue yourself, and you're going to automatically procrastinate and hesitate and frustrate in things that are low on your values. Now, if you set a goal to do something that's low on your values, and you procrastinate, hesitate, and frustrate, you're automatically going to think, well, the, I don't do what I say, and your belief in yourself is going to go down. Your confidence in yourself is going to go down. Your self-worth is going to go down. You're going to self-depreciate. This is why it's so important not to compare your daily actions to other people and not put people on pedestals and inject their values and inculcate their values into your life. Because then the second you do, you tend to set goals that are matching their values, but not your highest values. And then your self-belief goes down and your confidence goes down. And then you question yourself. And then you're afraid to take actions towards things because you doubt yourself. But once you set priority goals that are really truly yours, that are authentic to you, you reestablish the achievement and the belief in yourself again mm. and build up a natural born leader. And what happens then, that's when your thoughts become your things because your innermost dominant thought becomes your outermost tangible reality only in your highest values, not in values that aren't really important to you. So, so many people are expecting themselves to be, you know, their cat expecting to be able to swim like a fish and beating themselves up and think there's something wrong with them when there's nothing wrong with them. It's just but they're the setting goals mm. that aren't really theirs. Mm. I ask mm-hmm. people by the thousands, how many of you want to, uh, you know, become financially independent? Everybody waves their hand up. Mm-hmm. And I said, but your actual values don't show that. Your actual values say, I want to buy things of immediate gratification that are consumables that go down in value. So I'm working against my objective of being financially independent. So then you beat yourself up and feel like there's something wrong with you and you don't trust yourself because you're setting goals that aren't really matching what you truly mm-hmm. want. Identifying what your true highest values are is crucial for an empowered and dominant, your thoughts becoming things life. So there are two questions about that. The one, of course, has to be, how do you really identify those things in the beginning so that you can act in accordance with them, act with integrity to your values all the time? Because I think when often when you say to people, you know, it's quite a cliche, just follow your passion, do what's in your heart and then the, and the money will follow. How often do you see that? And then, you know, you talk to people and they say, well, I don't really know what's in my heart. I haven't found my passion yet. I kind of haven't found my niche. What would you, steps would you take them through to do that? Well, your life demonstrates what you value and your every perception, decision and action you take is based on what's really valuable to you. So you look at what your life demonstrates. I tell people, I said, what you're doing is you're comparing what your daily actions are and what you're spontaneously doing to what you think people expect from you. And you're comparing yourself and then you're questioning yourself because it's not matching the tradition, convention, and mores of the people that you're giving power to. But you got to look at what your life really demonstrates. How do you really fill your space? 
purpose and how do you spend your time and what really energizes you and what is it you spend your money on and what is it you're really organized and ordered in and where do you have the most discipline and spontaneity in and what is it you think about and visualize and affirm to yourself that's actually coming true and what is it you want to converse with other people about and what is it that's inspiring to you that brings a tear of inspiration when you're focused on it and what is it that you're actually setting as goals that are actually coming true and what is it you love studying and reading and learning and listening to about and watching on YouTube's amount. There's there's evidence in your life of what's really important to you. But if you're not setting goals that are congruent with that and not living integrally to that, you're designed to self-depreciate as a feedback to let you know that you're not being authentic to your real self. You're subordinating to the world around you, trying to fit in with conformity instead of building momentum with enormity. So you saying, I mean, this whole thing about delaying immediate gratification for the sake of a long-term aim, maybe we shouldn't talk about immediate gratification. We should talk about living with integrity and living your values. You know what you want to do, but very often people say, I don't have enough money. I don't have the degree yet. I don't have enough of the education. I don't have enough of the experience. I can't indulge myself enough in that. And it's often because you, you they can't see the link or hold onto the link it's like I have to climb the mountain with huge obstacles and a difficult landscape before I can get to the top and see the view is that not called life yeah but the thing is you know when I when I first I've been teaching 47 years next month well, you don't even month, look 47 <laughs> this this month will be 47 years and when I first started, if I took a video of it, I had my son actually do some archives that are th- almost 40-year-old archives. And he was, he was comparing himself to me. And I said, if you compare yourself to me in your 20s to me, you're going to beat yourself up because you're going to think, well, I'm not like my dad. Mm. I said, let's show you the videos of me at your age. <laughs> Oh. And he was going through me. He says, Dad, you were really, you were really sucked. <laughs> I said, that's right. I said, mm. but you got to start somewhere. But believe it or not, if you wait for this big outcome, this big so-called perfection or whatever, instead of just starting, you're going to end up beating yourself up because you're going to compare yourself to this fantasy in the future. I just started speaking and there was somebody that would listen and I was mm. grateful for it. And then more people would listen and I just never gave up on it. And people... Instead of building momentum and being incrementally changing and working towards a goal, they went this big immediate gratification of the mm-hmm. final outcome. And it's the, they're, they're addicted to the destiny instead of actually the methodical de- mm-hmm. journey. And I tell people, just get into action and just keep taking action mm-hmm. towards it. You know, the, the lady that, uh, with the dog, the dog Karen, a fantastic she story. just did it. Mm-hmm. And it turned into a, a fortune. Mm-hmm. And I've got letters from her almost every three months. She'd send me a letter of what's happened in her life because she just did actions every day. You know, Mary Kay from Mary Kay Cosmetics, 35 years ago, I I was lecturing for 4,500 women in Dallas at the Anatole. But finally, after I did this big talk throughout the day, I came back and I met with her. And she had a massive influence on women around the world. And I asked her, what advice can you give a young, aspiring speaker that wants to travel the world and inspire people? And she said, every day, write down the six or seven highest priority actions that you can do for that day. Not goals that take days or weeks or months, but just daily actions. And then do not stop until those are done. Don't write anything you're not committed to doing. And then if they get them all done at an early time, add one more. And if you still got time, add one more. But just train yourself to do incremental momentum building steps. And then keep records of those and find out what are the highest priorities of the highest priorities over time that keep showing up. Mm -hmm. And then stick to those and find a way of delegating everything away. And you build an inspirational life. Mm -hmm. I followed that. Mm -hmm. I don't do anything but research, Mm -hmm. write, travel, teach today. I delegate Mm -hmm. everything away. And I I have 
enormous amounts of energy because of it. So your message to it. people or, you know, whatever it is, it has to be in some way. You have to see the link to your priority values, even if it means that there has to be a fee. You've got to live. There has to be a living. But in what you do, even if it's not exactly how you would spend your time all the time, there is a link. You see it in a path to what you want to do. And then that keeps you on track and keeps you inspired. The master sees things on the way. The masses often see things in the way. And it's all about perception and the question we ask. If so, we ask how specifically is whatever's happening to me helping me fulfill my mission right. in life, you change it. If you be accountable to answer that question every day, you won't see things in the way. In you the build way. momentum. You have to see things and on the way. And you have to care enough about humanity to find a way of doing something you love to do in a way that serves other people. So you have the source of income to be able to provide the delegation income to be able to delegate lower priority things or otherwise you're trapped yeah. doing low priority things. Absolutely. And I, I found that if I just go out and I care about humanity and I go and, and go out and do something that serves people's needs, there's no lack of income to somebody who cares about people and finds a direct or indirect solution to their problems. Mm. There's a great mm. video right now on, on Bill Gates going around. He is sitting there on a daily basis looking for the biggest problems in the world to solve and finding solutions mm -hmm. and people to help solve it. And people that do that become fortunate. Mm. Because if you help other people get where they want to get in life, you get where you want to yeah, get in you life. You want to get in life, absolutely. So just to kind of change tack a little bit, because I was interested to hear that you were talking to large groups of women quite recently, and I find that they have kind of specific intentions. They also have certain obstacles, and I'd love your take on it. I found that even women who are successful in the traditional sense, power, money, status, or whatever, most of the time, when you talk to them one one on one and they start telling you well you know this has been my obstacle and this has been my difficulty it's often to do with some sort of lack of sense of personal entitlement and when you talk to them further it sort of turns out that women are still reared to be nurturers and caregivers and to look after other people which is noble and wonderful and they love it and no one wants to mess with it at all but the result of that is that they tend to put themselves not only second or third but last or even not at all and what I've been finding and I'd love your take is that they start building up resentment against the very people who they're trying to be nice to they can't understand that they don't hear what you don't say and that they say yes when they really mean no, based on this belief that of how they are meant to be, and it lands up with a whole build up which spills out at the slightest thing every now and then, or whatever. And it's been a thing in terms of a belief and trying to shift the beliefs in order to change their destiny about themselves that they have in turn. There's a beautiful, you talk about a video, there's a beautiful video of Michelle Obama acknowledging the men in her life when she was growing up who always made her believe that she was good enough, that she was pretty enough, that she was clever enough, that she was intelligent enough. And she goes on to say, of course I married someone who was worthy of me. There was going to be no doubt about that. But it seems to me with large groups of women that that tends to be the exception. Well, you just nailed a lot. Oh, <laughs> you, said it. you said it. But, you know, until you value you, don't expect the world to. Everybody wants to be loved and appreciated for who they are. And their identity typically revolves around what they value most. And so if you're living congruently according to that, you're less likely to compare yourself to others and more likely to compare your daily actions to what's meaningful to you. And when you do that, you build momentum. And when you do, your opinion of yourself goes up, not as a pride, 
but as an, a state of equanimity. Anytime you go into a state when you go into pride and you look down on employees or look down on customers, you undermine business. Anytime you go into shame and minimize yourself, you go into altruism and sacrifice for other people. And both of those create symptoms as a feedback mm. to let you know that those aren't authentic. You're not here to put your people on pedestals or pits. You're not here to put yourself on pedestals or pits. You're here to put yourself and others in your heart. So the universe is kind of giving us a feedback in business world and financial world is giving us feedback to be authentic. And our relationships are giving that feedback because no one wants to be with somebody that's looking down on them or looking up to them all the time. You know, if imagine if I went up to you and I, and I came up to you and I said, I just, I, Doreen, I just want to do everything you want me to do whenever you want me to do it. I just want to sacrifice my life for you. You'd get, go get a life. <laughs> get, get, get off your knees and get, you know, stand up to me, you know? But if I tell you, look, babe, you do what I tell you, You'd, and look down at you, you'd go, this isn't working for mm. me. You'd burn out. Tight. You get bored with somebody that's looking up to you. You get burned out by looking if they're looking down on you. But you feel love and heart when they're mm. looking across but at you. It's hard for a lot of people, John. Well, nature's I mean, forcing for us, us to. I mean, to make the shift, you know, when they have, as I say, sometimes they don't even, people don't even know what they want. There's a lovely analogy that I've just thought of now of a smorgasbord. The smorgasbord has every kind of food in it. And the idea is that we respond to what beckons to us. So we, that rare roast beef looks delicious or I think I'll have the croissant and the kind of director for that image is to say no 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 hang on just stop stand in front of it look inwards not outwards and say what am I hungry for what am I hungry for it might be a choice in which case you can take it but it might be something that isn't even on offer and for so many people they don't even really know what they're hungry for they function automatically so to get them onto that level of egalitarianism and that level of saying i'm good enough and i value myself i i certainly will honor you but not at my expense it's both and not either or is a job it's a re it's a it's not so easy. One of the one of the exercises I do in the breakthrough experience is I have people to take and make a list of the heroes and villains in their life, the people they admire the most and despise the most, seek and avoid the most, and then I have them identify what are the traits, the actions, or the inactions that they display or demonstrate that they admire or despise most, and then I have them own it, and I have them own the hero traits. And I can mean as if they're their traits. No, no. Where and when do they display and demonstrate those traits in their life? Okay. And when they eventually realize quantitatively and qualitatively that they display those traits, they don't put them on pedestals or pits. Mm. They have a reflective awareness. And I found that very powerful. And I've, I've seen people in the movie industries and in the music, music industries and in the professional golfing series, business people apply that and escalate their opportunities in life and the playing field that they could play in. Because at the level of the essence of the soul, nothing's missing in us. At the level of the existence of our senses, things appear to be missing in us. And the things we appear that are missing in us are things we're too proud or too humble to admit we have relative to people that we judge. And if we stop the judgment and own the traits, level the playing field, opportunities come into our life. What about the villain traits? We have to own the villain, too. Everybody's got a, a hero and a villain. If I went up to somebody and I said, you're always kind, you're always nice, you're always up, you're always positive. No, you you're don't know this. me very well. Yeah. <laughs> but I say, no, <laughs> no, you have nice and mean and kind yes. and cruel and all pairs of opposites. So to expect a one-sided thing and get rid of one the other side is futile. So when a person finally realizes that they have both, that's where their certainty is. 
they don't try to avoid their hero, their, their villain and be only a hero because mm. eventually the villain surfaces. So I don't even try to do I own both sides. <laughs> I'm the hero mm. villain. I'm the, the virtue vice, the saint, the sinner. I'm, I'm all the mm. things because I went through 4,628 traits in the Oxford Dictionary and I found out I had them all. There was nothing sure. missing. I had different moments. If you videotape me in different moments of my life, I would be looking like a hero yeah. and I'd be looking yeah. like a villain. The thing so. is with that, I'm going to stop you there because this is what happens quite often, is that people make assumptions based on a slice. We call it thin slicing. So you take a little bit of someone and then you generalize that out yes. you know, to them. And then you make huge assumptions about that person that might not even. I, mean, I once had a speaking engagement for a large accounting company. It was on Women's Day. And about a week before, I got a note of cancellation. And it was the CEO thinks that you're not the right person to do this particular presentation. And they wanted someone who was very well up in the financial field. And from that, I could see exactly what the assumption was I was doing a show that focused on sex and sexuality at the time I kind of inadvertently got into it but that's another story that became quite dominant because of the kind of subject and the nudge nudge wink wink that went with it this man had said what are you do, we're doing with you know Dr. D she talks about the sexuality and we talking and uh, anyway what happened is I sent a whole lot of references and I said I've never known your CEO but I think I know what it is and you know what happened is that they got it but it was a vast generalization and I can tell you I stopped that show because I actually saw that that was happening and affecting so we do that and I think that we do that in our lives all the time and there have to be ways of getting off that treadmill uh, let me say yeah. this. In our executive function, in our forebrain, we tend to be more objective. But in our amygdala, we be become very subjective mm -hmm. and we distort right. things. And this, as a survival mechanism, it's like an animal behavior. An animal in the wild, uh, when it is out in the wild, it looks and it sees a potential predator. What it does, it looks for patterns in the, the scenery. It has patternicity and it looks for patterns. And then it has pareidolia, it looks for faces. And then it has agentistity and looks for something that it animates and thinks it may be prey for something to seek or predator to avoid. When it does that, it has to err on a false positive, assuming that it's there when it's not. Because if it assumes it's not there when it's there, it could die it could or die. starve. Mm. So we automatically in our amygdala, our desire center, a desire for things that are pleasurable and a desire to avoid that's painful, that center skews and distorts and generalizes and brings perceptions to extremes of subjective bias automatically as a survival mechanism, not a thrival mechanism. Mm. And unless we prioritize our life and live by priority, which brings blood glucose and oxygen into the executive center and get objective, we're vulnerable to those distortions. Right. And we make these presumptions about who people are. I mean, the gentleman obviously didn't know your talents and your ability to articulate and master ceremony and do all these other things that you've done. And it doesn't matter really if it was a wealth building or whatever, you know you can, you can handle it. But he automatically put you in a box based on a few bits of data that he exaggerated and said, that's who you are. I get sometimes told that I'm a motivational speaker or I'm a this or I'm a that. And um, they, people want to put you in a box. But they're individuals that are living mainly in their thrival, their non-thrival center, their mm. survival center, and they distort things. Mm. That's part of part of what happens. So what you want to do, and I think it was Viktor Frankl who first wrote about this in terms of what you're saying, is to create a gap between the stimulus and response and between the stimulus and response you can think and that's the executive center instead of amygdala hijack which means reaction bah, yeah. like this without thinking stop i sometimes i see the big red stop sign think in the response you can think and then you make the more 
sort of broader, more. If, if you're not thinking with your executive center, you're going to yeah. react with your amygdala, mm-hmm. and your amygdala is going to act like an animal. It's going to try to avoid pain and seek pleasure. Mm-hmm. And whenever you're trying to avoid a pain and seek its opposite, you run into the pain even full full sure. force. Like road rage. Yeah. So so it's wiser to see both sides. In the breakthrough experience, the the program that I do. I tell people, take the things that you're seeking most and what are the downsides and the things you're trying to avoid most and what are the upsides. Level the playing field and the executive center has time to think. But as long as you get a highly emotive state, you're going to react. Mm. And you're going to react before thinking with impulses towards the pleasures and instincts away from the pain instead of intuition to get you back Mm. into a reasonable heart opening action. Mm. There's sometimes though, let me just ask you about this. Let's say your child runs into the road. Okay. You're not going to stop and see the gap and say, well, if I run into the road, something might happen to me as well. That is when that kind of um, primitive design, that reaction has to work for you. That's when you use your amygdala, unless they're a teenager. You stop and think, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm just joking. True, true. I want to know for how, how many years you're a teenager. Okay. <laughs> I just don't answer that one. Okay. Then thinking about this topic today, there was one experience that I had that I wanted to ask you about. So there's a group of five people. The boss comes into them and talks to them and says, come into my office next Friday at five. It was absolutely fascinating because when we unpacked it, it was okay. So... You know, what happened to you? How did you how did you act and how did those acts create your results or how they were likely to create your destiny? So the one said when he said that to me, I was sure that I was going to be fired. Most definitely. It happened to me before. I should never have taken this job. They, I got spoken into it. It never works out for me. And then we went on to say, okay, so what do you do with that belief? I don't care that much. I come in late. The work is shoddy or whatever. Let's say that he was going to get a raise. How do you think that action would have created the result which would have become your destiny? Well, he would have re-looked at it and he would have said, hmm, maybe I made a mistake about this guy just based on what he's done this week. And we went through all of them like that. One said, I'm definitely going to get a raise. I've been working hard and that motivates me and I'm going to work harder. So let's say the boss would have had in their mind to give them another job, but they could see the different kind of response based on their own inner belief, how that creates your destiny. So I'm looking at it at a more kind of day-to-day micro level as well and what tips you can give people to say question those beliefs and do not get into that self-fulfilling prophecy that might not have been the desired outcome in in the beginning well again it goes back to values i i keep you know bringing it back to that when you're living congruently in your highest values because you're more objective which means more even-minded you're less attached to the positives and the fear of loss of it. You're less attached to the negatives and the fear of gain of it. And you're more resilient, more adaptable. And you create youth stress, which is wellness promoting. Mm. And you're actually seeing things as a feedback to help you get what you want. But when you're down in the amygdala, you tend to skew things, exaggerate. You assume it's the worst or the best. Mm. And if it's the best, you're not prepared for the worst. And if it's the worst, you're not prepared for the best. And you're basically skewing your perceptions. And that's when you're unprepared and you have distress. And then you're letting the outer world dictate your life instead of your perceptions and inner world. So giving yourself permission to ask yourself, how is whatever's happening? How is it helping me move forward? And having contingency plans, I think, is wise. When people go for a raise, for instance, in a job, and they don't have a backup, they don't have anything in the backup to do another job, they're vulnerable. 
But if they know that they've got alternative jobs here, they can have confidence to say, well, if you're not willing to do that, I'm moving forward. Mm. Or if I'm willing to start my own business, then I, I, I respect that. But people that are dependent are going to be more likely to be in that amygdala mm. than people who are creative and willing to tackle the responsibilities and accountabilities of being more entrepreneur-like for their life. Mm. Hmm. Look, it's fascinating. I mean, we could we could just go on and on about it because it really is absolute tips that you can think about, that you can make manifest, most particularly according to your values, that result in a thrive or a life that thrives. It's the highest values, the thing that we value most that allows us to excel. And if we try to live by other people's values or our lower values, see, whenever you get infatuated with somebody and put them on a pedestal, you tend to inject their values into your, your life. And then you try to sacrifice yourself to be with them. Yeah. Almost anybody in an initial phase of a early infatuation relationship knows they start doing weird stuff that they never do yeah. to be with that person. Yeah. And then they eventually accumulate some resentment over doing that and they want to get their life back. And the sign that they're infatuated and doing something that's not normally congruent with what they value most is a sign that they're infatuated and they've got them on a pedestal. But nobody worth is worth putting on pedestals. Mm -hmm. They're worth putting in hearts. And that's usually the case that that's the individual that is not the one that works out mm -hmm. because you have them on a pedestal and you're minimizing yourself and sacrificing yourself. And on the other side, you can reverse that and project your values onto others and let them try to live in your mm -hmm. values, which is futile. So what we hope for you is that you put the people around you in your heart, especially those that you you want to be with and especially those that you love and minimize. That maximizes that. your performance in life and your fulfillment in life if you... I mean, it's all about, I, I know this sounds cliche, but really the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom is yeah. a, a path for people. It's an old philosophy, sure. but it's still true. Well, thank you very, very much for that. And uh, wise words indeed. I always look forward to more. It's kind of very nice when you run out of time before conversation. And that's what always happens with us. So thank you. Very, no, thank very you much. for getting thank us you. enjoyable. Thank you. I'm Dorianne Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a jackpot podcast.